Father in heaven, Father, again, we're approaching a subject that is holy ground, and we approach it reverently. And Father, I ask that your spirit would guide us away from those areas of speculation and into those areas that are important practical truths for your people living in the last moments of earth's history. And so guide us now, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want to say again, this, is not, this presentation is not intended to be a, a, a hard, rigid, you've got to look at this the way I do when we leave here, etc. If you want to think, if you th see things differently, that's fine. I just encourage that th this is a subject that has been unstudied by our people, and I think there's an important aspect of studying it, and that aspect is understanding. Here, here's the thing. I mentioned it already going into this, that the final test is a test of character, and character is formed by our choices that we make every day. And let's just be real clear, without the grace of God, we would never make a right choice. When we're looking at the nature of Christ, what we're doing, and let's, let's make this clear as well. By, the Bible tells us that when Adam and Eve sinned, they brought upon themselves a condition their nature was perverted into a carnal nature. The Bible says the carnal mind in Romans 8 is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. In other words, a carnal person can never, ever come in harmony with the law of God. If it wasn't for Christ saying, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, serpent. If it wasn't for Christ promising to come and take our humanity and bring his divinity in and lift up humanity we wouldn't be making any right choices. And so it's because of Jesus taking our humanity that gives us the ability today to make the kind of choices that will develop characters for heaven. Sometimes we talk about that and people say, oh, you're talking about how you're going to make yourself righteous. No, it's, it's never making ourselves righteous. In fact, that was going to be our last presentation. We'll do it some other time. But we'll never make ourselves righteous. We wouldn't make the first righteous action or have the first righteous thought if it wasn't for the grace of Christ. Let's be clear about that. And that's because of his sacrifice. And Jesus' sacrifice wasn't just on Calvary. It was an infinite sacrifice to take humanity. It was an infinite sacrifice. And, uh, and I praise God for the humanity of Jesus. Now, what was this humanity? Um, Revelation 3 and verse 21, and we're on page 6 if you have the handout. If you've just come in, this uh, URL, if you put that in your smartphone, that will bring up for you the, uh, the handout, the document file that I am going off of. And I'm on page six. In the middle of the page, number five says, overcoming as Christ overcame. Now, this is the language of Revelation chapter three and verse 21. Jesus tells us that we are to overcome as he overcame. Now, again, just me asking questions as I'm reading the scripture, I'm trying to understand this. The question to my, in my mind is this, how could we overcome as he overcame if he didn't overcome as we have to overcome? Amen. I'm going to ask that again. It's in the handout. How could we overcome as he overcame if he didn't overcome as we have to overcome? He says, overcome as I overcame, and, he, and, and then we say, we can't. And he said, ha, ha, ha. I mean, what's that? I mean, honestly, what's that going to be? The implication is when he says, you need to overcome as I overcame, means it's possible. Okay, it means that the way he overcame is a way that I am able to follow. 
Now, once again, that implies to me that there was, that, that he experiences something similar to me when I am in that valley of temptation. And what we're going to explore is the relation of what the Bible calls the flesh and the mind. Now, we're going to look at a few passages here together. The first is Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2. You'll, you'll notice that when the Bible speaks about human nature, it speaks of it in these terms, the flesh and the mind as separate components. And just to throw a wrench in it for you, if you've never studied this, the flesh and the mind both refer to the mind. <laughs> hmm. And so we'll get to that in just a minute. But we'll explain it. The flesh, when the Bible talks about flesh, it's not talking about this. It's not saying Jesus came with skin. Okay? And we'll see that in just a moment. Look at this in uh, Ephesians 2. Notice verse... We'll start in verse 1. Ephesians 2, 1 says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, notice, fulfilling the desires of the, what? The flesh and of the mind. Why are those things separate? We're going to talk about that here in a minute. And we're by nature... Children of wrath, just as the others. Our nature is made up of those things, the flesh and the mind. Now, let's see how that plays out. I mentioned to you Romans 8, 7, the carnal mind. It says the carnal mind is enmity. The carnal mind is not subject to God's law. Okay? But the Bible also tells us about the mind of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 16, we have the mind of Christ. Okay? Adam didn't have the mind of Christ after the fall. The mind of Christ is something that comes in conversion. Hold on to that. We'll come back to it. We're just, I'm just wanting you to see that we're going to look at the difference here between the flesh and the mind. Now, Romans 7 really, I was going to say fleshes this out, but <laughs> no pun intended. But Romans chapter 7 does flesh this out. Romans 7, if you go with me to verse 18, I want you to notice the language of the Apostle Paul here. Ooh, I'm in 1 Corinthians. Romans 7, starting in verse 18. Now, most Christians are familiar with Romans 7. This is a chapter that I think everybody in the world... In fact, I, when I preach in a place that has... A, 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 I, I get a lot, not a non-Adventist or what have you. I mean, this is a great chapter because everybody relates to the struggle Paul describes here of wanting to do the right thing and finding yourself doing the wrong thing. The internal battle between the flesh and the mind. You're going to see this in just a moment. Verse 18 says, For I know that in me, that is in my... Flesh, nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me. Now, to will is another way of saying to choose. It's not just to want. It's to choose, to will something. Where do we will? Where is the, where is the center of the will? What part of the mind? The frontal lobe, right? That's where we make decisions and reason, and that, that's where it's seated there. Judgment is in that. And so notice, he says, in my flesh dwells no good thing, because I... To will is present with me. In other words, to will to do right is present. But how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. 
I find then a law. Now, this is a principal kind of law here. You'll see that in a minute. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my what? Members, let's say flesh, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Now Paul is sharing a powerful truth here that we have to understand about fallen humanity. Fallen humanity is made up of two components, the flesh and the mind, and all reside in the mind. Now if you actually do some brain study, what you're going to find is that, as I already mentioned, reason, judgment, and the, and the like, decision-making, is in the frontal lobe of the brain. But there's another portion of the brain called the limbic system that controls all the urges of the body. Now, you medical students got to know that probably, right? And the rest of us, maybe we've studied it, maybe not. But the idea is this. The urges of the body, I'm not talking about something that we, we call the lusts of the flesh. That doesn't... You know, that word lusts means the desires of the flesh, and it isn't always evil. Hunger, thirst, desires for love, sex, those kinds of things are controlled by the limbic system. Now, the way God created man, the way Adam was before the fall, reason and judgment always controlled the flesh. That is those urges and desires of the body. That's how man was created. And so... You know, there's, there's, there, there's nothing wrong with having des uh, desires. There's nothing wrong with wanting to eat. There's nothing wrong with wanting to drink. But that can be perverted, can't it? Yes or no? And so reason was always to bear sway. <clears throat> the problem is that when Adam and Eve sinned, they brought upon themselves and their posterity, that's you and me, a condition in which reason was weakened and the flesh was strengthened so the body and the bodily urges always controlled reason. So that, for example, when you eat Thanksgiving dinner and you're stuffed and you've got to loosen your belt buckle and you're like, I couldn't eat another thing. It would be a violation of every principle of my body to eat another thing. And somebody says, hey, anybody want pie? And you're like, right here. <laughs> right? That's why that happens. Because where reason was supposed to bear sway, reason doesn't bear... It, the, the carnal mind is not subject, neither indeed can be. And so fallen man finds himself now in a condition where he has no power to, to overpower the urges of the flesh. Okay? This is how the Bible describes human nature. The flesh does not refer to the body itself or the skin, but to what Ellen White referred as, now we'll look at this, this in a minute, as what she calls the lower passions, the natural desires of the body. These are contrasted with what she calls the higher powers of reason and morality. Now consider some of these statements. This one is from the book Adventist Home, bottom of page six, if you're following along. Ellen White says, the lower passions have their seat in the body and work through it. The words flesh or fleshly or carnal lusts embrace the lower corrupt nature. The flesh, now listen to the next, this, part, this next part, or follow along. The flesh of itself cannot act contrary to the will of God. Isn't that incredible? So even as corrupt as my flesh is and my urges and my desires, they can't 
Force me. The reason is always there, and I always have to make a choice before I sin. I can't, my, my body can't force me to sin. It can't force you to sin. The problem is, in our fallen condition, our mind has no power over the body. Okay? We are commanded to crucify the flesh with its affections and lusts. How shall we do it? Shall we inflict pain on the body? No. But put to death the temptation to sin. The corrupt thought is to be expelled. Every thought is to be brought into captivity to Jesus Christ. All animal propensities are to be subjected to the higher powers of the soul. So, now she's speaking to converted people and saying, you have the mind of Christ, but you need to exercise the mind of Christ by faith and choose to expel the thought that's corrupted. Right? And so even the the urges of the nature are there. Well, the only thing we point out now is this, that this idea of the flesh and the mind, the components it deals with are reason versus the urges of the body. And, and, And what happens, do you think, every time you yield to the urges of the body? They strengthen, right? So at first, I might just have, it just might be hunger, and I'm, le- I'm legitimately hungry, and just give me a p- an apple or a piece of whole wheat bread, right? But it doesn't always stay that way, does it? Because when I give in to the urges, they get stronger and stronger, and, and next thing I'm eating all kinds of junk or whatever, if, if that's the issue, if it's, if it's food appetite kind of thing, or if it's, uh, it can go from there to alcohol and drugs, or it can go to sex or whatever else it is. Uh, there can be pure desires for love. Desires for love are fine, but they can get distorted and perverted when I yield to them in the wrong way. Look at the next statement. Top of the page 7, it says, Child Guidance, page 382, and I threw this in here on purpose. You know, Seventh-day Adventists, I mean, I, I would say, I should ask Arden, you're part of the health study, what percentage of Seventh-day Adventists are vegetarian? In spite of all the counsel that we have. Okay, so 38 to 41%, less than 50% of Adventists are vegetarian. Why? Well, it's not a big deal, and we're saved by grace anyway, right? Listen to this statement. I have been instructed that flesh food has a tendency to animalize the nature, to rob men and women of that love and sympathy, which they, it strengthens the passions, right? That's the last thing we need. Just like any wrong choice strengthens the passions. I'm going to tell you, I don't need my passions strengthened any more than they are. I need the mind of Christ, right? It tends to animalize the nature to rob men and women of that love and sympathy which they should feel for everyone and to give the lower passions control over the higher powers of the being. If meat-eating was ever healthful, it is not safe now. A lot of people just think it was a health thing. It's just like, you know, so we can live longer, like 10 more years or something. That's not why we had health reform. It was to keep the mind clear and the passions on the, on the weaker side. So we could have victory. So we could reflect the image of Jesus. Satan reaches the mind through the flesh. God reaches the flesh through the mind. I think it was A.T. Jones who said that. I thought that was profound. Satan reaches the mind through the flesh. This is why, for example, when you have, you have, and you've maybe heard studies on music before, and worldly musics use a certain kind of beat that bypasses the reason center. Are you aware of that? And so all, their, all the philosophies and things in that music, you're just snapping along. It's like, hey, this is really good, not even thinking about what's being put into your brain. 
Satan bypasses the reason center and finds his way into the mind through the body and the urges of the body. But God goes through the mind to control the body. It works the other way around. He starts here. He gives us the power to reason and choose the right path. Jesus came with the same fallen nature we have, but with his higher powers in control. This was the distinction. He had the weaknesses of, what did Ellen might say, 4,000 years of degenerated humanity. But his mind was uncompromised. And so no matter how strong the urges of the flesh, he always resisted. Even in thought. Not even in thought did he even entertain. And that's hard for us to think. We're just like, well, how can you be tempted? But that, look, the Bible talks about temptation. And James says that every man is tempted when he's led away by his own desires and enticed. And when... Desire conceive uh, when when yeah when desire it's, it's, when desire conceives it brings forth sin and when and, and then sin when it full grown brings forth death. The point is that every man's led away by uh, tempted when he's led away by desires and enticed. But temptation isn't sin. When you're drawn away at something and you say no and you expel the thought, that's not sin. That's temptation. <clears throat> Jesus came with the same fallen nature we have, but with his higher powers and control. So he wasn't just like us. If he was just like us, we'd all be lost. He brought divinity into humanity. This is the mind of Christ that the scripture talks about. When we accept Christ and receive the new birth, we receive the mind of Christ and are able by the power of Christ to once again place reason above passion. To overcome as Christ overcame. That's what that means. But you're never going to do that unless you exercise your will. That's why Ellen White tells us that what man needs to understand is the true force of the will. You're never going to get anywhere if you don't make a choice. It's not a magic carpet ride to overcoming sin. Jesus provided everything. He took our humanity. He brought divinity into humanity. And now he offers us through the new birth the same divine mind. It's a conversion process that should happen every day. And he changes our thoughts and puts us in control and helps us to resist evil. But helping us is not going to be choosing for us. And this is why, to me, this is such an issue for us to understand. Because there are far too many Christians that I know who have bought into a modern evangelical view of salvation that's just sit back in the easy chair and I'm going to just be a sinner until whenever uh, I can't overcome in this life and uh, thank God for the grace of Jesus and grace becomes to them an excuse to live in sin. That's not biblical. And what's going to happen is when the final test comes, there are going to be a lot of people that are going to be unprepared. Now, Jesus has paved the way for us to be overcomers now. And this is why the scripture, why do you think all this stuff is recorded in the scripture? Why, you know, why do you think the scripture, I, I, I was talking to somebody recently about this. Um, you know, because people get on the idea about all the, all the do's and don'ts of, you know, some religions, they say. Have you ever read the Bible? <laughs> you read the epistles, right? All the New Testament, what is it? Do this, don't do this, don't do this. And by the way, don't ever do this. Don't think about doing this. And go ahead and do this, and you better be doing this, right? I mean, why all the instruction if it's not, if we're not, oh, we can't follow it anyway. It's there because by the grace of Christ, we can follow it. We are expected to follow it. In the book of Acts, 
Chapter 17, the Bible says that God winked at the times of our ignorance, but now commands men everywhere to repent. He doesn't suggest. He doesn't kindly ask. Could he maybe? He commands us to repent. He says, you know now. Salvation has been purchased for you at an infinite cost. Now you need to respond. Not just with lip service. And so here we see Jesus coming into humanity to gain the victory for us. In the next statement from Testimonies 2, if you're on there, page 7, it's the middle of the page, in the blue, some will acknowledge the evil of sinful indulgences. Some will acknowledge the evil of sinful indulgences. Yeah, I know it's not best for me to, to, to uh, drink coffee. Yeah, I know it's not best for me to uh, be hanging out with my friends and, and, and staying up late playing those, you know, shoot 'em up games and stuff. I know that. Some will acknowledge the evil of sinful indulgences, yet will excuse themselves by saying that they cannot overcome their passions. Why is this weakness? Why is this weakness? You want to hear the answer to that? It is because the animal propensities, those are those bodily passions, the animal propensities have been strengthened by exercise until they have gained the ascendancy over the higher powers. They've been strengthened. You, you say all day long, I know I shouldn't do that, but as long as you do it, you're just straight, you're working it out. You're working out that sin muscle. That's what you're doing. And you strengthen the propensity. And so when you know in your mind, I don't want to do that. You're not choosing by the mind of Christ to overcome. And it strengthens that propensity. And the Bible says that Jesus, uh, rather Ellen White said that Jesus didn't have like passions. He didn't have the propensities. You know why? Because he never yielded to temptation. He never yielded to temptation. When he, when he was faced with a temptation, I mean, it's, we can't understand that. What would happen if you, you know, you think about the things you struggle with now, and I will guarantee the things you struggle with now are things you have strengthened all through your life. Jesus never strengthened anything. He never yielded to temptation. And so he didn't, he didn't have a corrupted nature like we do. And you might ask, well, well then, then, then if he didn't have a corrupted nature like me, then, then how is it fair? How can he really say he was tempted on all points like as we are? Well, we're going to come to that in just a moment. Why the weakness? Because the animal propensities have been strengthened by exercise until they have gained the ascendancy over the higher powers. Listen to this next part. Men and women lack principle. They are dying spiritually because they have so long pampered their natural appetites that their power of self-government seems gone. Man, I praise the Lord. The prophet talks to us like this. No, nobody else wants to do that these days. It's like, oh man, that sounds so legalistic. No, it sounds like God wants us saved is what it sounds like. And he knows the process. He knows that you've got to make choices. I've got to make choices. He can't for he's not going to force us to be saved. He said they've, they've so long pampered their natural appetites that their power of self-government seems gone. The lower passions of their nature have taken the reins and that which should be the governing power has become the servant of corrupt passions. A.T. Jones in 1895, I have a little quote here. I'm just, I was debating on reading it, but I'm just going to read it because it, it, I'm just going to read it. In the scriptures, 
all the way through, speaking of Christ, he is like us and with us according to the flesh. He is the seed of David according to the flesh. He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. Don't go too far. He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, not in the likeness of sinful mind. Do not drag his mind into it. His flesh was our flesh, but the mind was the mind of Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ came in just such flesh as ours, but with a mind that held its integrity against every temptation, against every inducement to sin, a mind that never consented to sin, no, never in the least conceivable shadow of a thought. And by that means, he has brought that divine man to every man on the earth. And woman. Therefore, every man and woman, for the choosing and by choosing, can have that divine mind that conquers sin in the flesh. Look, that's why he took humanity, friends. That's why the humanity, that's why Ellen White says the humanity of Christ is everything to us because it's a pledge to you and me that no matter how bleak it looks, by the grace of Christ, I don't have to live as a slave to sin. Now, these next couple statements are hard for people because we say, I don't understand how it can be. But exercise a little faith here. Desire of Ages 664 says this, Jesus came into the world, bottom of page 7, to display the glory of God that man might be uplifted by its restoring power. Jesus revealed no qualities and exercised no powers that men may not have through faith in him. Now, I'm standing up here in front of you preaching, and I'm saying that is hard to believe. And the only way I can believe it is by faith. I believe what God says here. I believe in the power of Christ. His perfect humanity is that which all his followers may possess if they will be in subjection to God as he was. Again, the top of the next page, similar statement says... If we had to bear anything which Jesus did not endure, then upon this point, Satan would re represent the power of God as insufficient for us. Got to understand that in everything we're talking about here is in, is, is in the context of something that is far bigger, called the Great Controversy. That way back in the beginning, the devil said, look, God, you've, got, you've required too much of your creatures. Nobody can ever do it. You need to admit it and give it up. I'm right and you're wrong. If we had to bear anything which Jesus did not endure, then upon this point, Satan would represent the power of God as insufficient for us. Therefore, Jesus was in all points tempted like as we are. He endured every trial to which we are subject. He exercised in his own behalf no power that is not freely offered to us. His life testifies that it is possible for us also to obey the law of God. Now again, you're just like, you may be thinking, well, I don't know, man, I mean, to obey the law of God. And we think of it in the, we think of it in the ultimate scale. But let me simply ask this question. How many of you, by the grace of Jesus, have overcome something in your life? Okay, maybe you smoked, maybe you drank, maybe you caroused, maybe you did a number. And when you came to Christ, you stopped doing those things. Because of your strength, because of your power? Is that how it happened? What happened? Jesus gave you the victory over that sin. 
So why can't he give you victory over other sins? In other words, we have the testimony, even in our own experience, that Jesus is faithful. And the challenge with us sometimes is this. We want everything sooner than maybe it's going to happen. There are, when you have years and years of, of building those pathways in sin, then it takes some time of cooperating with God to pull us out of that. But that doesn't mean he's not going to do it. That doesn't mean he can't do it. We see in Jesus, we see in Jesus the promise and the pledge that we can live above the weaknesses of the flesh. Now, the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are. Question can be asked. If he didn't have the passions that we have, how can we say he was tempted like we were tempted? Let me, let me explain this even a little bit further. Some people have asked me this. You know, Jesus never took drugs, obviously never became a drug addict. So how in the world is a drug addict supposed to find hope in overcoming his addiction when Jesus never dealt with addiction? Okay, people have asked that. Now, the question reveals very faulty thinking. And I'll tell you what that means. Who do you think it's harder to tempt with drugs? The person who's strung out on them or the person who's never used them? To get a person who's never used drugs to be tempted by it, does the temptation have to be stronger or weaker? I'm going to tell you, it doesn't take much of a temptation at all to get a drug addict to say, okay, I'll take it. You hear what I'm saying? Or a food addict or anything else. We seem to think that because Jesus wasn't some strung out drug addict, he doesn't understand my temptation. The fact of the matter is because he never gave in to sin. When he faced those temptations in the wilderness, for example, he had to go 40 days without eating to experience what you and I do between breakfast and lunch. Oh, man, I'm dying. Is this sermon over yet? I can't even. Oh, my daughter, my, my 12-year-old daughter. I mean, she's like, she eats an hour later. She's like, I'm going to die. What are we going to eat? Right? She's going to eat all the time. Jesus had to go 40 days just to get to equal the, 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 the temptation he experienced in his flesh, stronger levels of temptation. Now, let me back up a little bit. Tempted in all points, as we are. The Bible teaches three areas of temptation, three points of temptation. 1 John chapter 2, and I'm not going to have you go there. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In fact, I heard it in one of the Sabbath schools this morning. Those three areas, every temptation a person faces fall into those areas. There's a little overlap as well. Lust of the flesh, those are the, those are the desires of the body. It's not just sexual desire. It's desires for hunger. It's desires for, and those are perverted desires. So desire for hunger, drugs, and alcohol, and all that are lusts of the flesh. Lust of the eyes. And lust of the flesh can have to do with sexual sin, but so can lust of the eyes fall into that. And the pride of life. Now, these are the three areas. And if I had time, we'd go through Adam and Eve's fall and Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And you would see even in his temptation in the wilderness, he hit all three. The three tempta Why were there three temptations of Jesus in the wilderness? Why not four? Why not two? Why not six? He was tempted on those three points. And he experienced in those three points the depth of temptation, the greatest depth that anybody will ever experience. And so you can say, well, you know, I've got this drug addiction. Jesus doesn't know. Oh, yes, he does know. For two reasons he knows. Number one, he came in our humanity. And because he never yielded to sin, the temptation was put on him that much stronger. And he still resisted. And he gives that strength to you and me when we receive the mind of Christ. 
That's reason number one. Reason number two, when Jesus was on Calvary's cross, everything that you feel when you sin was placed on him. Jesus knows what it's like to commit sin when he never committed sin. The shame and, 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 and the despair you feel when you fall into that sin for the hundredth time and you knew you weren't going to promise God you wouldn't, he felt that on Calvary's cross for you and me and everybody. There's nothing that has not touched Jesus that touches us. This is what Paul meant when he said, in order to be a merciful and faithful high priest, tempted in all points as we are, he was touched with our infirmities. He knows like nobody knows what you experience. But he also knows victory right where you struggle. And the importance of being clear on the nature of Christ, and I'm not talking about every nuance, but the truth that Jesus met you where you are and overcame where you fall so you could overcome. That's key for us to know. Because otherwise, what we'll do is we'll be making excuses for ourselves. And that's we we do that all the time. Well, I just, I, we're just, we got this flesh. I hear people say, we got this, I got this flesh. I got this nature. <laughs> well, lose the nature. Die to self. Accept the mind of Christ. And be an overcomer. Amen, Pastor Howard. Amen. <laughs> I know it's getting late. Something I want to, some, one other thing I want to share in relation to the temptation of Christ is that, you know, because we get it, this is where people will ask, and maybe somebody had this question. Well, okay, we you know, talk about Jesus taking our nature and he meeting, us, meeting our temptations and what have you, but let's be real. The wilderness, temptation, number one. Turn these stones into bread. Uh, sorry, that's never a temptation that I've ever faced, and I don't think I ever will face that temptation. It's not a temptation for me to turn stones into bread. How's that anything where, like, where I am? Understand that our greatest temptation across the board, greatest temptation that underlies all other. In fact, Ellen White says she saw the ledgers of heaven, and she saw all the sins recorded there, and above all the sins, there was one master heading. Anybody remember what it was? Self. The root of every temptation is self, relying on yourself instead of relying on God. That's why we sin. We give in to the sin. Why? Because we don't trust that what God says. God says this is the best way to eat, for example, but I'm not going to eat that way. I'm going to eat this way. Why? Because I don't trust that, that God ultimately is a trust issue. You may not see it that way. When Jesus was in the wilderness, I, I won't go into the wilderness. Jesus faced, but the, the, the temptation of turning... I will go into the wilderness. The temptation of turning the stones to bread. Did I say stones to bread before? Something just told me I said water to bread or something like that. I've done things like that before. Anyway, no, I haven't turned water to bread. I've, I've thought things like that. Anyway, the temptation to turn stones to bread was a temptation of Jesus to rely on himself instead of relying on his father. Now, his self could turn stones to bread, but he laid his divinity aside. Something that's, that's hard for us to understand. Well, let me read a statement. This is where some people are like, whoa, you read this statement, and it's like, how does that even fit? In the book Confrontation, page 85, which is a fascinating book. If you've never read Confrontation, it's a, it's about, it's a compilation of Review and Herald articles Ellen White wrote about Christ's temptation in the wilderness. Phenomenal. Page 85, it was a difficult task 
for the prince of life to carry out the plan which he had undertaken for the salvation of man in clothing his divinity with humanity. He had received honor in the heavenly courts and was familiar with absolute power. It was as difficult for him to keep the level of humanity as for men to rise above the low level of their depraved natures and be partakers of the divine nature. Now, I actually had a guy in my church just ask me this. He's like, well, pastor, what, what about this? What does it mean keep the level of humanity? I mean, it was, it was hard for him to keep the level of humanity. It's not hard for me to keep the level of humanity. And she even says that. It's, it's as hard for him to keep the level of humanity as it is for us to become partakers of the divine nature. Why? What was Jesus' self? Myself is human and myself is carnal. What was Jesus' self? Divine. So for Jesus to rely upon self was to, to rely on divinity. So for him to keep the level of humanity was to deny self. For me to deny self, I've got to deny humanity and seek to be a partaker of, to partaker of the divine nature. And so sometimes you read these temptations and say, well, it doesn't sound the same. He was tempted this he was only tempted from a perspective of he was the son of God. Now, you can chew on that for a while. There are aspects of the life of Christ and the temptations of Christ that we will be studying throughout eternal ages. But what is most essential is to understand this. We have a complete Savior who was tempted at all points that we are tempted in, yet without sin. And if you want guidance, there's no better place to go than somebody who has faced anything you can ever face and has overcome at every point. And that somebody is Jesus Christ. And that somebody, Jesus Christ, promises you that you can be an overcomer by his grace and you will one day soon stand faultless before the throne of God because of what Jesus did in taking humanity and overcoming humanity on your behalf. Ellen White says, the last statement on page 9, Satan declared that it was impossible for the sons and daughters of Adam to keep the law of God. That's where the controversy started. And thus charged upon God a lack of wisdom and love. If they could not keep the law, then there was fault with the lawgiver. Don't forget that. This is, this is not just Adventism. This is Scripture. And too many people view salvation as just this personal, am I going to make it? And they forget that if only, if I make it, but if God, if, 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 if I don't allow God to perfect his character in me, then the questions and the controversy that the devil leveled at God are never answered. That's what we talked about the other night. Here they are, right? Jesus humbled himself, clothing his divinity with humanity in order that he may stand as the head and representative of the human family and both, by both precept and example condemn sin in the flesh. That's the language of Romans chapter 8, verses uh, 3 and 4. And give the lie to Satan's charges. He was subjected to the fiercest temptations that human nature can know, yet he sinned not for sin is transgression of the law. By faith, he laid hold upon divinity, even as humanity may laid hold upon infinite power through him. What Jesus did, humanity may do. Although tempted upon all points, even as men are tempted, he sinned not. He did not surrender his allegiance to God, as did Adam. And so, by the grace of Jesus, you and I may do. And I praise God for that. 
And I would say this, don't sell yourself short in your Christian experience. We, we don't be talking about your flesh all the time. I mean, I get so tired. Oh, you know, I'm just so weak. And I mean, quit talking about yourself, right? Yeah, it's weak. We're weak. Let's, let's, let's talk about his strength. Okay, we can talk. Let's, yeah, what, here, let me pull up a chair. Let's talk about weaknesses, human weaknesses. We'll go on and on and on and on and on. Let's look to the strength of Christ. Get our focus on what he's promised for us. Live up to what he has paved the way for us. And in our Christian experience, let others see in us the character of Jesus. Amen? Because that's what he has prepared you and me for. And let's take some questions. There were some questions earlier. I'm sure there might be some questions now on the, the nature thing. And we'll just take a few, like 10 minutes or something. Are there any? You know, they say when a teacher teaches, if there's no questions, either it was crystal clear, it was so confusing, nobody even knows what to ask. So, I'm going to just pretend it was the first. Questions. Anybody have questions on what we've discussed? Any question? I can't tell you I have an answer to it, but there's one right up here. Oh, do we have a, we don't, go ahead and just ask it and I'll repeat it. Okay. 144,000. Wow. Okay, what did I say? I have, huh? Oh, repeat the question. The question is, the 144,000, are they, I mentioned that, that uh, the 144,000 are not the only ones going to heaven. The question was, are they the only ones who aren't going to sin? Oh, so or, so there, will be, there will be, with no sin? Right, in other words, kind of like, who are the 144,000? That's what I was saying. And I'll, I'll try to do this briefly. Uh, I would recommend you do a little reading, do some research it, it, it's interesting to do some research in Ellen White's writings. I believe there's about 26 original statements, 26 or 27 on the 144,000. I've compiled them up at one point and I've gone through them. And of course, there are duplicates in other places. But Ellen White speaks of the 144,000 as the ones who overcome the beast in his image. She speaks of the 144,000 in the terms of the living saints, those who are alive when Jesus comes and they're translated without seeing death. Okay. I believe, the scripture tells us about the 144,000. They don't have any guile in their mouth. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They're not defiled with women. All of this language to me tells me that this 144,000 are those who are going to be translated. They're going to see Jesus when he comes in his glory. In order to do that, they will have had to be purified from sin or they would be slain by the brightness of his coming. Okay? The apostle says that without, without holiness, no man will see the Lord. Right? They have got... so. My understanding from Scripture and Spirit of Prophecy is the 144,000, those are the, la the, the, what I, I would call the part of the last generation that will not die, but they'll be translated to heaven. And in order for that to happen, Jesus will have to finish the work that he's doing in the cleansing of sin in those individuals. Now, the distinction is this. Not everybody is going to be among the 144,000 who are saved. Not even everybody at the end of time. There are going to be people who are laid to rest at the end of time who won't live through and become one of the 144,000. Now, the only point that I would make there is people have asked before, well, if God's going to purify the sin, so how come grandma and grandpa were able to go and they didn't? Because, they were, because the demonstration of cleansing of sin in the last generation is not man's demonstration, it's God's demonstration. In other words, the fact that God didn't do it for grandma and grandpa because of whatever elements in, in, in the, the, the time in history and what was able to be revealed to them and everything else, that's God's business. He knew where they would be. But in the very last generation, you're going to have people who are going to have to be ready to see Jesus come in the clouds of glory. So to me, my understanding is those are the 144,000. I think if you do a little study on this, you'll see probably similarly. Yes, Doug? 
That's right. The righteous and, and, and oh, the, the special resurrection. Um, let me just not go into the special resurrection right now. because Oh, you're, you're talking about the what? The righteous will be resurrected. That's right. That's right. But they will be, the, according to scripture, they're going to be, those, you're going to have two groups of people. One who sees Jesus coming. The other who, when they're raised from the grave, it says this mortal shall put on immortality. And so there's going to be a transformation that takes place for those coming up out of the grave. Those who are living at the time of Christ will have had that transformation while they're living. Which is just phenomenal thought. But you can, you know, study that out a little bit. Any other questions? Yeah, that, no, that's fair, and I'm glad you asked that. And there's a reason. I, I used to use the terminology, and somebody called me on it. I'm not, like, opposed to it, but the idea of Jesus being born, born again, well, he really didn't ever need to be born again. But that's the term we would use to make... So in other, but when we're born again, what happens is, when, a, when we're born again, it doesn't change. It doesn't take away our sinful nature. It changes our mind. It gives us power of will. To choose, right? We receive the mind of Christ. And that's an important distinction to understand. Some people think, well, I'm going to give my heart to Christ and then everything, I'm going to automatically... No, you're not going to automatically anything. You've got to now fight the fight of faith. And so for Jesus, he didn't have to go through that process. Like he said, we could say he was born, born again, or he was born with the divine mind. In other words, when we are born, the, 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 the ground Jesus came on is the ground we're placed on through the new birth. Prior to the new birth, we're not like Jesus in his nature. Jesus was divine and human, but the Bible says we can become partakers of the divine nature. That's what conversion is about. So when we're converted, what it does is it gives us the divine mind and now puts us on the place where Jesus lived out in his humanity and by his power, now divine power work in our lives, we can live as Jesus lived. And that's not a, that's not a, you know, I, you know, I know you get p people take pot shots. They're like, well, we can, we can, we can. Well, yeah, we can, but it's not us. It's Christ who lives in me, as the apostle says in Galatians chapter 2. Question back here. Yes, and I'm really glad you asked that too. You know, one of the, how many? The question, The question? You know, do you have a mic? You can. No, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it, because I'll do one more after this one, and I think we'll wrap up. The question was, A.T. Jones talked about sinless perfection, and ask me again now, ardent through my thought here. To what Ellen White says about perfection. When we talk about perfection, there's a book I'll recommend to you. It's a book called The Crisis Ahead, by Robert Olson, the late Robert Olson, used to work for the Ellen White Estate. It was a syllabus that he used for his class on last day events when he taught at Pacific Union College. And it's phenomenal. It's question and answer format. And uh, it's been republished. You can probably find an older uh, version of it for, uh, anyway, there's a chapter in there on perfection. And I think he does a great job of going through her statements, etc. But when we talk about perfection, there's two things I'd bring up. Sinless perfection. Well, what other kind of perfection is there? Um, you know, now we can talk about, you know, people, and J Jones did this. Well, you know, a, a child, a baby can be perfect at a stage of growth where he's not full grown, but he, if, or a plant. If a plant grows and, it, and it's just where that plant should be at that stage of three weeks or four weeks of whatever growth, then you could say it's perfect at that stage, even though it's not completely mature yet. In the same way, we mature as Christians. But in an ultimate sense, 
When we're talking Christian, this is a bad word today. And so we have all these ways of saying, oh, no, don't use the word perfection. Let's talk about maturity and all this. But the bottom line is this. There finally is going to come a time when there will be people who will be sinlessly perfect, just as God is sinlessly perfect. It's not because of their own strength or ability or anything else, but it's the work and workmanship of God. But make no mistake, God doesn't leave jobs half done. And this is what it means in Philippians 1, 6, where it says, He who, who begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, here's where some people, this is the other thing. This is where people, we talk about perfection. Some people say, because of our fallen natures, we can never be perfect before Jesus comes. Well, in an absolute sense, that's true. Because our natures won't be changed until that moment, that twinkling of an eye because our natures won't be changed until that time, then bodily we won't be perfect. But characters can be perfect. And when Adventists historically have talked about perfection, what we're talking about is character perfection. Akin to the statement where Ellen White says, when the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. That's character perfection. That's what Jones uh, and I don't know, I'd have to look at the specific statement, because Jones, sometimes he would talk about perfection in those stages of growth, which is accurate, and sometimes he would talk about it in that stage of uh, final, the final workmanship of God. And that, I'm going to tell you something, brothers and sisters, that's my hope, that Jesus is going to perfect his character in me so I don't sin anymore. I mean, I, think about it for a minute. Okay, so now Jesus is done with his work in you, yeah, but I still have some sin in me. Oh, that's okay. You can't get rid of all of it. I mean, think about that for a minute. Is that really what you expect? No, every one of us expects at some point. Nobody thinks they're going to be sinning in heaven, right? Yes or no? Are we going to be sinning in heaven? So if God can stop us from sinning in heaven, why can't he stop us now? Find a good reason for that. Okay, is there, I'll take one more if there is one more. Otherwise, uh, we are going to conclude with prayer. Okay, I don't say I see one right here. Yes. Amen. And he will do what he promised. And that's ultimately where God's people are at the end of time. We've got to believe in the promises of God. So much so that we believe in his promises above everything that we see, think, and feel. We believe what he says. Do you believe what he says tonight? Yeah. Amen. Well, let's pray together. Father in heaven, Father, we do thank you for the Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity we've had to come together and study Father, there are a number of things we've looked at today that we will be studying throughout the eternal ages. But Father, let us leave here knowing of a certainty that Jesus, our high priest, can save us to the uttermost. Lord, help us to believe that to the uttermost. Help us to cast our trust in him, to put our trust in him and cast our cares upon him. Father, help us to act out our belief in him, and exercise faith in the promises of Jesus by putting away sin, by purifying ourselves even as he is pure, by sharing the three angels' messages with the world around us and looking forward eagerly to the coming of Jesus. Father, I pray that you will bless us as we leave here tonight. Go with us, Father. We pray that the time that we spent today would help others to see that we have been with Jesus. And we ask and pray this all in his name and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio 
and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.